Today, as we continue in our series, Love Lessons, we come to the third non-love, that love is not selfish. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us. But you see, we all suffer from selfishness. Every single one of us this week struggled with selfishness. And so today, as we look at this sickness of selfishness, we're going to see not only the symptoms and the source, but also the solution to this sickness. As you and I turn once again to Philippians chapter 2, where previously Paul revealed the antidote to the poison of pride, now you and I are going to see together the antidote to the sin of selfishness. And it is a sin. And we have to recognize it as a sin. But we live in this society that promotes self. And isn't it amazing how hard it is to live in this world, but not live for this world? To to swim, but not to get caught up in the currents of selfishness and start to flounder and ultimately to sink into that selfishness? And that's why you and I need to not only hear the word of God, we need to heed the word of God because it does us no good if we listen to the Lord, but we don't end up living for the Lord. My prayer is this, that God would replace our selfish nature with servants' hearts. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Philippians 2, 1, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate that make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clinged to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. You see, the first thing that we see here, number one, is the sickness of selfishness. And every single one of us, as I mentioned, struggle with these selfish desires, these selfish attitudes and actions. And what we need to understand is that selfishness doesn't just infect us, it affects those around us. You see, we are born with a sinful nature, and part of that sinful nature is a selfish nature, the ones to make it all about me. And compounding that, when we are born with this sinful nature, as babies, we learn very quickly that when we cry, we get what we want. And the problem becomes is if we don't have parents that help cultivate within us a servant's heart, that help us to grow through that and to grow out of this selfish nature and into a servant and a servant's heart. And there are many people today as we look around that have grown up physically but not emotionally. They're still acting like babies. They're still acting like children, still wanting the world to revolve around them because they've gotten caught up in this selfishness. Now, to compound that problem, we live in a culture of selfishness. 
We live in a society today that is constantly promoting self. How many times a day do we hear the message, you need to buy this, you need to get that, because you deserve it, and you're worth it, right? And we love to hear that. I deserve it, I'm worth it, and we buy into the culture of it's all about me. I think God has put into the heart of every parent a desire for things to be better for their kids than they were for them. That we want it to be better for the next generation than it is for us, but in our failure to define better, we have defaulted to easier. That we'll just make it easier for our kids. And I think in some ways we have made it so easy that it has become hard. That what we've done is in our attempt to make things better for our kids, we have cultivated not a servant's heart, but a selfish heart. And then we reap that in those teenage years and later and we go, I don't know why my kids are so self-centered. I don't know why they've always got to make it about them. And so you and I, in in our desire, God-given desire for things to be better, we have to define what is better. And to make things better for our kids, we have to help them cultivate a servant's heart, not a selfish heart. The second thing that we see here are the symptoms of selfishness. You see, every one of us this week displayed some sign or symptom of selfishness. Don't believe me? Then then let me ask you this question. Why have we become a society of selfies? Got to take a picture, got to post it. Got to get all the accolades, all the affirmation. We've got people today that that are falling off the Grand Canyon, getting bitten by rattlesnakes, run over by buffaloes because I got to get the perfect selfie that will stun everybody. And, And what is it really all about? It's not about the selfie, it's about self. Now let me ask you this question. Imagine for a moment you're in a group and we do a group photo. Let me ask you this question. The very first time that you see that group photo, who do you look for in the picture? We don't think about this stuff though, right? Surely it's your best friend. Surely it's your mom. No, it's probably you. Now let me ask you this question. If you look good in that picture, do you like the picture? You better believe you like, man, look how good I look. I'm, I'm good with the group because I look good. Let me ask you this question. If everyone else in the picture looks bad and you look good, do you still like the picture? I mean, you're just going to crop everybody out and now it's back to a selfie. (laughs) Let me ask you this question. Here's a challenging one. If everyone else in the picture looks bad, they've got their eyes crossed, spinach in their teeth, and because they look bad, it makes you look even better. Do you like the picture more? You see, it's starting to reveal this, this heart that you and I can have towards selfishness. And here's what starts to happen. We start to look at life through the lens of self. And there's this little mini me that shows up in our eye and we filter everything through that little mini me. We filter work through it. What's fair or not fair, according to who? Me, not what's fair or unfair according to other people at work. 
We start to filter what we wear. We start to filter our worship. You've been guilty of this, I have, where you've walked out and you've said, oh, I really like the worship or I really didn't like the worship. Now, why are they so guilty? It's not wrong to like it, but can I ask you, who was the worship for? It, are, we, are we here singing praises to ourselves or to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? But see, self can hijack worship. Will we make it all about my preference instead of about my prince, the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, here's the problem with this little mini-me in my eye. It makes it really hard to see life from other people's perspective. And I want everybody to see things from my perspective. Now, before you and I look at the solution to this sickness of sin, I want to look briefly at the source Number three, the source of selfishness. Like with most things in life that God intended for good, Satan has twisted them, not just for evil, but but to hurt, to kill, and to destroy us. And there are at least two things when it comes to this sin of selfishness that he has done this with. The first has to do with your survival, self-preservation. God has put that within every one of us, the most basic, innate, core desire within every single one of us, the desire for self-preservation to survive. You see, when we come across danger, when we come across potential death, what do we say? Not today. I'm going to fight against this. I want to survive. I don't want to die. And this is a, a good thing that God has placed within us because without it, we wouldn't last very long. But you see, here's what Satan does. He twists this self-preservation. And in that desire to preserve self, we start to shove other people aside. And we see this so clearly in the tragedy of the Titanic. You see, on that fateful day when it struck the iceberg, no one believed it would sink. And for a while, everyone was cordial. They got along. They were really nice to each other. They even kicked around the ice on the deck. Because why? They were told it was the unsinkable ship. Interesting that amateurs built the ark and professionals built the Titanic. But what happened when it started to take on more and more water? When they had come up with this brilliant scheme to to make it to where if one area was flooded, it wouldn't flood the other and we'd separate them out, only they didn't separate them all the way to the top. And so once it filled up, it tipped over to the next and it tipped over to the next and now the ship starts to list in the water. Now it's starting to, to tilt her and sink and people are finding themselves on awkward angles. And here's what happened. The people got split into two camps. Those that were focused on self and those that were focused on serving. You see, those that were self-focused, this self-preservation started to kick in where they started to push other people aside, where they started to take their life vest from them because I don't have one and I don't care if you die as long as I survive. They started to take spots in the lifeboats. Now, the lifeboats were initially reserved for the women and children. But there were men that went below deck and they started to find women's clothing and they dressed up and pretended to be women. There were men who were wealthy who started to pay off some of the, the, the um, people on board to allow them to get into these lifeboats to take up spots so they could survive and someone else wouldn't. Now on the other side, there were those who were noble who recognizing there were not enough life vests, not enough lifeboats, started to give up their life vests. 
They started to give up their spot on the lifeboat. I know I've got a secure spot. I know I will be saved from this tragedy, but you won't. And I'm getting out of the boat so you can get into the boat. You see, it wasn't about self-preservation. It was about a service preservation. It was still preservation. I want to preserve other people. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He was willing to give up his life so that you and I could be saved, so that you and I could get in the boat, so that you and I wouldn't have to die this horrible death in hell. You see, the second thing that that Satan likes to twist is this desire for significance. And we all want to believe that our life matters, that we're going to leave a mark, that we're not just a waste of skin taking up space. But see, here's what many of us fail to realize is where our significance comes from. Now, God has placed that within us, this desire for significance. That's why we see some of the most beautiful art and architecture and advances in modern medicine and technology. But here's where it runs amok, where you and I don't filter it through the light of eternity, where we forget what God says about us, that when we were created here on earth, that man was the pinnacle of God's creation on earth. We were his crowning glory, and he crowned us with glory. Next time you go to the Rocky Mountains and you look at that, everyone in this world will tell you, that's magnificent. Can I tell you? You're way above that. You're more significant than that. God sees you that way. But the problem is we try to find our significance in our jobs instead of in Jesus. And so what starts to happen is, again, just like self-preservation, this desire for significance starts to push other people down. We start to put people down so we can put ourselves up. And we start to hurt people. You see, it's here, number four, that we come to this solution to this sickness of selfishness. And what is that solution? Well, Paul gives us three solutions here. And under all three of these, he, he, he expounds upon them so that we won't miss how significant these points are. And here's what can happen. We can get caught up, especially those of us that like to take notes, we can just get caught up in writing. And I'm going to encourage you, take notes, but here's the thing. If you miss something, don't panic, just go on. It's in the Bible app. Email me, text me, message me on Facebook. I'll get it to you. Don't get caught up on, the, on just keeping the, the notes. I want you to really hear the heart of God today because here is the first solution to this sickness called selfishness. The the way that you and I combat this selfish spirit is, number one, we have to remember who we are and whose we are. Paul reverts back to our relationship with Jesus. And he reminds us because we belong to Christ, there, there are four blessings here, four promises for you and I. And the first blessing that we need to see here is that Christ encourages us. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Isn't it amazing how much of a Christian life we run around depressed, discouraged, downcast? Why? Because we're not finding our encouragement in Jesus Christ. We're trying to find it in our circumstances instead of in Christ. It doesn't take long in this world for you and I to recognize that that this is hard. Jesus said this. John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but do not fear, I have overcome the world. But in this world you're going to have trouble. Here's the thing, just because you're Christian doesn't exempt you from headaches and heartaches. You can't have the rose without the thorns. 
But here's what happens when we go through these hard times and we forget that our encouragement is in Christ, we're tempted to become selfish. Why? Because when we go through hard times, we become very inward. It's about me. It's about how I feel. Especially when those hard times are tied to economic things. Because we all of a sudden don't start to share with the people around us. We start to hoard the things that God has blessed us with. When you think about the widow during the drought, and Elijah goes and she's down to her her last flour and her last oil. And Elijah says to her, if you would just bake me some cakes. And she says what? Oh, sure, I'm totally finding my encouragement in Christ. No, what does she say? I'm fearful. Do you realize that that is one of the greatest tools that the enemy will use against your fear? Fear that you don't have enough, that you need to hoard it, that you need to start being selfish in your life instead of selfless. But what does Elijah say if you trust God? What happens? She, she says to him, but, but, but this is our last meal, and my child and I are going to eat it, and then we're going to die. It's really depressing. Because God can't take care of us, right? We're just his children, and he doesn't really love us. That's what a lot of us believe today. But Elijah says what? I won't want you to live your life based on fear. And there's some widows that need to hear that today. I want you to base it on faith. And what does she do? She cooks that last meal, and she gives it to him. And what happens throughout the whole rest of the drought? Every day she has just enough flour and just enough oil. And there are some of us today, we're running out. Why? Because we're running on fear instead of running on faith. And we'll run out and we'll wore out. You and I need to be asking ourselves a question today. Are we encouraged Christians or discouraged Christians? Because discouraged Christians are susceptible to selfishness. I'm going to start to hoard things out of fear. The second thing that he says here as we think about you and I remembering who we are and whose we are is that Christ embraces us. Notice he says, any comfort from his love. The Philippians had experienced the comfort of Christ and therefore they knew how to comfort other people. And you and I, we need to be willing to do that. Now let me ask you this question. How did you and I become one with Christ? How do we become united with Christ, to have unity with Christ? What was the catalyst for unity with Christ? It was love, right? Here's what it says in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What was the catalyst for us being united with Christ? It was love. Can I ask you this question? What is the catalyst for unity in the church today? What do we want to make the catalyst for unity in the church? Or our social standing. We want to make it about our environment. We want to make it about politics. We want to make it about our preferences. We want to make it about worship styles. But let me tell you something. Nothing's changed. The catalyst for unity in the church is the same catalyst for unity in Christ. And that is love. Because here's what John says, 1 John 4.10 and then verse 11. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Unity with Christ, catalyst, love. What about the catalyst in the church for unity? Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. Are you embracing people? Are you being abrasive with people? Second, not only do you and I have 
this comfort and, and, and this encouragement and being embraced. But number three, Christ encompasses us and he fellowship together in the spirit. And that word is koinonia, which literally means to commune with Christ and to commune with other Christians. But how often in our marriages do we let selfishness break our fellowship? You ever been there where you don't talk to your spouse? <laughs> you can't call that fellowship. You ever been there where you're mad at them in your head and in your heart? That's not fellowship. You ever been there where you're counting it all up and, and you've got this 50-50 marriage and you feel like you've done more than they have? Let me tell you something. The person that says, I'll meet you halfway is usually a poor judge of distance. And every one of us, we think we've done more. And so, so we got our stack. And, and where does that come from, that selfish spirit? Marriage is 100-100, not 50-50. You see, you and I need to recognize here that for many of us, we are ruining our relationships because of selfishness. Fourth thing that he says here, Christ enhances us. Our hearts become tender and compassionate. Have you been changed by Christ? Are you more compassionate and tender than you used to be? Something that we do with people is we take snapshots of them and we filter that through where they're at right now. But what we miss is where they've come from. And sometimes if we were to look at where they were a year ago, we'd be like, wow, man, they are more tender and compassionate. But when we just take that snapshot right now, we might judge them as not. But I want to ask you this question. Have you been changed? Have you been enhanced by Christ? Because if you call yourself a Christian, there's been no change in your life for the last year, then I would ask you to check one of two things. Your conversion, are you really saved and secondly, your walk with God, are you really walking with him or is this just something you do on the weekend and you live a totally different way the rest of the week? You see, how many of us make it all about our interests, but do you realize that Christ put his interests aside to make it all about our interests? How many of us today are making it all about our agenda, but Christ was willing to include us in his agenda? The first combat to this selfish spirit is remembering who and whose you are. Secondly, seeking to serve others with joy. Now, Paul here is going to give us four powerful principles, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. You, you can dive in a little deeper, but what I want you to understand, these are so powerful that they will work in any situation you find yourself. They work in a marriage they work in parenting. They work when it comes to the church. They work when it comes to a Christian business. And so I want you to take note of these. And the very first thing that he says is we seek to serve others by bringing joy. And remember, this revolves around relationship and people as he says we have to possess the same perception. Notice what he says, like-minded, agreeing wholeheartedly. That is a unity based on an outlook in the Lord, in our Savior, not in self. Are you looking at life through the lens of the Lord? What kind of a perception do you have in your marriage, in your parenting? Are you together looking at life through the lens of the Lord? Because here's what happens when we look at life through the lens of self. We end up on two different teams. And some of us, we're failing in our marriages, we're failing in parenting today because we're not on the same team. We may be in the same book, but we're not on the same page. 
Second thing that he says here, not only do we need to possess the same perception, but possess the same passion, loving one another. Are you passionately loving your spouse? Are you passionately loving your kids? Are you passionately loving the church? Do you possess that kind of passion for other people? Where you're not afraid to not just tell them that you love them, but to truly, sacrificially serve them. You see, this is an agape love. This is a love that loves people the way they need to be loved, not the way they want to be loved. And parents, we need to learn something. There are times where we have to love our kids the way they need to be loved, not the way they want to be loved. God does the same thing with us. He meets our needs, not just our wants. Next, he says this, possess the same principles, working together. Did you notice that? Not warring with one another, but working together. And what's interesting here is the word that is used is only used here in the New Testament. And in this particular passage, and it literally means to have one soul. To to be so closely connected as to almost just have one heartbeat. Wouldn't that be awesome to have a church where we're so closely connected, we just got one heartbeat. We are possessing the same principles. John Wesley said this, and I love this quote. I want the whole Christ for my Savior. I want the whole Bible for my book. I want the whole church for my fellowship, and I want the whole world for my mission field. You see, lastly, we have to possess the same purpose. Notice what he says here, one mind and purpose. Can I ask you a question? What is your purpose? Do you possess the same purpose in your marriage? Have any of you ever written out a purpose statement for your marriage? And when we get married because we're in love, well, that's great. That's wonderful. But what are we here for? What's our purpose? Just to be happy or to live out a holy example for our kids, to, to bless the next generation, to be a blessing to each other, and to share through our marriage this mirror where we reflect Christ and not ourselves. How many of you have sat down and actually written a purpose statement for your parenting? Isn't that amazing? We bring these wonderful little creatures home that mess themselves and cry all night. Unless you're a guy and you're like, I think they slept through the night. <laughs> yeah, right. Mom will testify that is not true. But we bring these kids home and we, we, we never think, well, what's, what's the plan? What's the purpose here? When we're all said and done, what's the, what's the product? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish in pouring into this kid's lives? Now, let me ask you this question. What's the purpose in the church? Oh, we can make the purpose a lot of things, especially our comfort. But what does Christ call us to? To see people saved, to see saved people grow while they reach the next. Can I share something with you? Our youth have caught a vision and a passion and a purpose. They went to lead the cause, heard about sharing Jesus Christ. They have come home and they didn't just say, hey, that was really great principles. They're saying, let's put that into practice. But what takes us from principles to practice? Passion, a love for the lost. And they're sharing the gospel. And we, we, we've seen like 10. How many kids have we seen saved this last couple of weeks? 19 kids. Is that not? Yeah, get excited. Do you know how hard it is for, for kids, especially teenagers, to share their faith with teenagers? Yes, you do, because you've got coworkers. 
And you're scared spitless to say something to them. You're, you're like chameleon Christian. I'm undercover Christian. No one's ever going to know I'm a Christian. And they're going to go to hell because of that. Because we want to hide our faith today instead of living out loud because of fear. Because we've got a whole culture telling us to be quiet. Man, we've got a whole cloud of witnesses telling us to share our faith and get loud for Jesus. Now, why do we say to see people saved and to see saved people grow while they reach the next? Because here's what most churches do. That's great, you're saved. You need to go over here and you need to go through 3,000 classes before you can ever talk about Jesus. Now, they know how to share the gospel. They just got saved. They understand what they've been saved from. Who are some of the most passionate people for Jesus when it comes to sharing their faith? People just got saved. And you know what we do? Shh. No, we should, we should be okay with ministry being a little messy. And maybe they're not going to get everything theologically just perfect. But they're going to share their passion. Jesus changed my life. I was a sinner and I was going to die and go to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. But Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for me. And I placed my faith in Jesus. And now I have an eternity, a home in heaven with him. It is literally that simple. Here's what Jesus did in my life. Every single one of us, we have a testimony, but here's what we do. We compare all of our testimonies to Paul, and what do we say? Well, Paul's got this amazing testimony. I don't have an amazing testimony. You've been saved from hell. You've got an amazing testimony. I don't care how that occurred. Yeah, it's, it's really great when it's a blinding light and it's this big, huge thing, right? But can I tell you, it's always a big thing when people get saved. And so often we minimize it. Based on the experiences, it's, it's not about the circumstances. It's about what Christ did in your life. You see, one of my favorite cartoons is the Peanuts cartoon. And I call her Loudmouth Lucy because she's always running her mouth and, and, and telling someone what to do. And there's this one cartoon where she comes and she tells them to change the channel on the TV. And the question is asked of her, who made you the boss? And she goes, this did. She says, individually, these are nothing, but when they come together, they're a mighty force. Do what I tell you. And so as they're changing the the channel, the guy's over there and he's like, how come you guys can't get organized? (laughs) And I wonder sometimes in the church, Not that we would get organized to become a fist that would hurt, but this powerhouse that would help people. So I want to ask you, do you have the same perception? Do you possess the same passion, principles, and purpose? You see, it's here very lastly that we see the third thing that will help you and I to repel and to combat this selfish spirit, and that is this. We have to examine the motives behind our actions. What is really motivating my heart? What was it that brought unity? That unified us with Christ and unifies us as a church? It's love, right? So what do you think the motive has to be? Love. And it's here very quickly that Paul gives us four things. And he says that love must be the primary motivator for your actions. Don't be selfish. A selfish spirit brings pain, but a servant spirit brings peace. Not only does our love need to be the motivator for actions, but also for our attitudes. Notice what he says here. Don't try to impress others. How much of our life do we get caught up in trying to impress people? I mean, we dress to impress today. Here's the reality. 
you're going to leave an impression on people, but the question becomes this, what impression are you going to leave? Will your impression be an impression of self or will it be the Savior? When people get done meeting you and being around you, will they be impressed with God or just impressed with you? You see, I'm not here so that people can be impressed with Giles. I want people to be impressed by Jesus. Because really, truly, I've done nothing. He's done everything. What if you and I, instead of living to impress, live to invest? To make a difference in the next generation. You see, it's not just that you and I are called to have the motive of love be the primary motivator for our actions and our attitudes, but also for our ambitions. Notice what he says here, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Man, ego can so get in the way, can't it? There's a great story about Sir Robert Meyer. And Sir Robert Meyer um, was kind of in those circles of sort of royalty. That's why he was called Sir Robert Meyer back in England. And on his 100th birthday, they threw a reception for him and all of the the, the who's who showed up. And one of the people that showed up was Lady Diana Cooper. And she'd been a socialite for many years. Lady Diana Cooper was getting old. Excuse me. She was getting mature. And so she was starting to have this failing eyesight where she really couldn't see very good. And at that reception for Robert Meyer, she was talking to this woman who obviously knew her very well, but she couldn't place the woman. She couldn't see very good, and and she couldn't figure out who it was. You ever been there when someone seems to know you, but you can't recall their name or who it is? And finally, it clicked who she was talking to. She was talking to the Queen of England. And she gave this apology. She said, "I, I am so sorry, but I didn't recognize you without your crown. And here's what the Queen said. Well, this reception was for Robert Meyer. And so I left my crown at home. What would happen if if you and I would actually do that? If we would put all those things aside, but but it goes back to that trying to impress people, doesn't it? That that we want to show up and we want to tell them who we are and what we know and, 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 and we want to try to impress upon them that we're somehow important. But what we fail to talk about is Jesus. You see, the last thing here is that love needs to be the primary motivator for your associations. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Are you willing to associate with other people? You will if you love them. You see, the church should not be a place of cliques. The church should not become a little club. We should be willing to associate people, and the motivation for that should not be their political persuasion. It should not be their position in the society. It should not be their bank account. It should not be whether they are of the same social standing as us. It should be because we love them. Christ died for everybody. Love is willing to associate. See, you and I need to understand this. If we're really going to combat selfishness, kill it, and cultivate a selfless servant's heart then we got to start looking more like Jesus. And so I want to ask you this question. Is there any sin of selfishness lurking in your heart? Because as there is, what we do is we have to confess that to the Lord. And I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we're going to share something with you, and so I don't want you to leave. But as I pray, just, just share that quietly with the Lord. Father, thank you for this time together. 
Thank you for your word and how you speak to us. And so often we filter everything that happens through me. How does this affect me? God, would you help us to be servants? Would you cultivate within us a heart that truly wants to love people? That love is the motivation for our actions and our attitudes, for our ambitions, for our associations. For we pray these things in your name.